Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and today I'm joined by two thriller writers who are going head to head in a war of the words, pitching a book they love against one another. And the clock. My first guest writes screenplays, comic books, and best-selling thrillers. Welcome to Book Off, Greg Hurwitz. Thank you for having me on. Lovely to see you again. And my second guest has been writing top-class thrillers for over 30 years, which surely can't be possible because he can't be a day over 35. It's Robert Goddard. Hello it's, to you. It's just as well. It's a <laughs> podcast, really, isn't it? <laughs> you, can be, you can be as young as you want on a podcast. And that voice, Robert, that voice. Um, so, Greg, you've swapped uh, The Sunshine of L.A., for the slightly gray skies of the UK for the next few days. Yeah, I'm here. I'm, en- I'm enjoying having a bit of water in the air, I think you call it. A water in the air, yes, indeed. Yeah. And obviously being, being British, the first thing I do is ask any guest that hasn't come from the UK, or who indeed has come from the UK about the weather. Uh, and one of the first things I said to, to you, Robert, as you sat down <laughs> was, and you know, did you leave the sun behind in Cornwall? And uh, I think the answer was no. It's been a, a, a sort of averagely wet winter, which is very wet. We're going to talk about both your new books. We're going to get into the book off a bit later on, where you'll be pitching two very different books against each other. But I want to just ask first about how you both got into your, your writing and your love of stories. And I think, Robert, your, your love of stories started when you used to read the newspaper to your grandmother, is that right? Uh, that is true, yes. Yeah. As her eyesight was failing, I was commissioned to read to her from the local paper. And um, I started to find it pretty boring, so I became a little inventive with some of the articles. And uh, it was good training, actually, in uh, starting from a very realistic base before venturing off into more interesting territory. Certainly the murder rate uh, took a noticeable tick up in the area. Uh, She really enjoyed it, actually. Did she? And she believed... Pretty much everything you told well, us? Well, I, I kept it on a fairly realistic base. I mean, yeah. when I say the murder rate ticked up, it ticked up from zero to one. Uh, but I had to continue the investigation, and it, it started to become clear to me I should have planned it more in advance. That was the great lesson that taught me. <laughs> but I was rumbled in the end, which was, I think, more of a disappointment to my grandmother than it was to me. <laughs> and, and Greg, what about you? Because you, you wrote your first novel when you were, like, 19 or something, didn't you? And I did. I was very young, but I actually got my start also reading the newspaper to Robert's grandma, a little known, <laughs> little known fact, um, and had an even more considerable uptick in the murder rate. Yours was up in the 20s, 30s, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I got. Yeah, I had a bit of American exuberance, so we overdid it. Poor Gran. Um, so, so the only thing I ever wanted to do was write. I don't even remember a time before. I was not allowed to watch television when I was growing up, which was felt like a horrific limitation on my American freedom. 
Uh, and so the only time I was allowed to watch television if, is if the Boston Red Sox were playing because my father's from Boston and that's that was religion or if there was Hitchcock on TV, mm. um, which I think take those two things taken with bourbon explains 80% of my personality. <laughs> and so we read morning, day, and night. I just, I always had a book and I, I thought in stories and I, I started writing my first mysteries. I was in, I was about 10 years old and I'd illustrate them with crayons and it was all I wanted to do. And by, by the time I was a little bit older, I was reading Stephen King under the covers with a flashlight. He's 25 years old. No, I was, you know, <laughs> by the time I was 12, I was blasting through Stephen King. Yeah. And, you know, I remember being totally terrified and having this awareness that here's this guy all the way across the country in Maine putting down a familiar, you know, a, a combination of familiar words in an unfamiliar way could elicit that kind of emotion in me and terror. And I thought, when I get older, I want to do that to other people. <laughs> it's quite, quite a nice aspiration to have back then, I guess, and, yep. and then fulfill it. Um, and Robert, who were you reading then, when you, apart from the newspaper, when, when you were sort of growing up and getting into writing? Oh, I think, uh, well, Conan Doyle... Mm. Robert Louis Stevenson, people like that. Um, I also uh, read a wonderful magazine, well, I thought it was wonderful, called Classics Illustrated, which um, gave you the whole classic novel in a handy illustrated package. Um, as a result, I'm able to claim that I've read The Last Days of Pompeii um, <laughs> with some slight degree of accuracy. Uh, no, actually, they were great introductions to the story, and it is all about the story. Uh, and the real excitement of not knowing where it's going to go. Mm. Then, then, well, then thinking that you could do that yourself. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then to, to go on and do so, uh, which you both have done and both have new books out currently. Greg, let's talk about Out of the Dark, because this is your new thriller about the assassination of a corrupt US president. <clears throat> it is. I wonder um, where you got that I, uh, idea from. Well, I, I have to say that I, I had the notion of this. I've been building to this book for some time. So it's not a commentary on current political predicaments, no matter how much people are offended by that or desirous of that. Um, but I wanted to write, you know, growing up, one of the seminal thrillers for me growing up was The Day of the Jackal. And I always wanted to write, you know, my version of Day of the Jackal. And that's this, except, you know, Orphan X is going to assassinate the very corrupt president of the United States. And we're rooting for him to do so sort of the biggest thriller premise that I could think of. And once in a while, we land on a premise like that that seems mm. undeniable and then hugely intimidating to figure out how to do it well. And so this is something that you'd thought about for a long time then, this, this had been building. It was building, you know, so I'd say all the books before, all the Orphan X missions before this one were just practice leading to this. Mm. And so it took a lot for me to be ready to write a book of this kind of scope. I always knew I was going to do something that's a tip of the hat to the day of the jackal, but I had to, I felt I had to get ready for it and make sure I, that I was, that I could pull it off. I did so much research into the secret service and the security procedures in, you know, like the door of Cadillac one, the presidential limousine weighs as much as the door of a uh, Boeing 747. Wow. There's so many procedures and I assembled them all for, for months. And then I was standing there like a little figurine at the base of the wall from Game of Thrones, staring up at it, <laughs> figuring out if there was any way I could get my character up and over this sort of wall of, of, of security protocols. And then I had to figure out my way to scramble up it. So were you sort of stalking the secret service then? Uh, yeah, let's just say that if anybody checks my Google search engine, that I'll be promptly arrested and thrown in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> well, it's, we'll, inter it's interesting that uh, you, you were talking about the Day of the Jackal, Greg, because 
The problem that actually overcomes uh, Forsyth in that book is that we know that de Gaulle isn't assassinated. Uh, so how do you inject tension into something that we know isn't going to happen? Though I must say that when I read it, I thought he was just going to go counterfactual on us and um, mm. have mm. de Gaulle uh, killed. Having... Of course, if you stick to an historical character, that's a problem you have. So there's the freedom of the the unhistorical, but there's still that edge to real people. Do you think there's there's an edge to real politicians that you can't quite uh, get with uh, the made-up version? Mm-hmm. I've always found making up politicians is a, is, a, is a difficult one because you can never imagine how extraordinary they're going to be. <laughs> That's true. I mean, especially right now where I feel like our suspension of disbelief comes from, you know, if your if your grand was still around, you'd be reading her stories and I think she would she wouldn't be believing what's going on in the news right now. They're giving us novelists a hard go go of it. They are. Mm. Yeah, that is true. Although I have to say my grandmother would uh, uh, her her own acquaintance with the truth was often often a little hazy. So uh, Maybe that's where you got it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, how, it's it, it, it's uh, it is it is difficult, isn't it? Because all those sort of uh, extraordinary things they do, um, unpredictable things, mm. uh, it's very difficult to to uh, make a whole version of one of these up. Well, I saw uh, Vice recently, and again watching it, and obviously not every single detail is is going to be hundred percent accurate, but watching that film, knowing it was based on a true story, knowing knowing that it was about Cheney and, and that whole administration and George W., it's it's quite amazing because that should be made up and that should be one of those films we watched where everything was, was just complete fiction and yet, you know, now it's almost as if events that have gone and are happening are making the best stories almost. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just glad that in the States we've managed to have a really... Um, stable and dull political scene, so we don't have to worry about these things anymore. Uh, you, been, I mean, we've really, you've been quiet over there. We've pre- been projecting a sort of calm elegance over the last <laughs> two years. And um, we'll talk, talk a little bit more about Out of the Dark shortly, Greg. But I want to ask uh, Robert about One False Move as well. This is your latest book, and it's your twenty eighth novel. Yes. Just a, just a just a few gone before it. Um, and in it, you 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 explore what sort of value can be put on the human mind. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, we don't understand the human mind. We're ill-equipped to do so because we are the mind. Uh, and uh, analysing your own mind is a very difficult thing to do. And we've never, we've never really uh, uh, got into it's. It's about as underst- It's about as well understood by uh, scientists as uh, the extreme depths of the ocean. Really, there's something going on in there that we don't really comprehend. Mm. And uh, ironically, it's us. Uh, So I simply took the idea that there is no limit to what one mind might be capable of. And, uh, of course, as soon as you have somebody who is capable of a lot, then they become a target and their life is changed by that. And and we're talking about Joe Roberts in this novel, the character. Where did he come from and, and why is he so sort of special? Well, there's no reason why he's special. Mm. That's uh, that's the point, really. You you wouldn't be able to uh, say that somebody is going to be special because of uh, heredity or uh, genetics. They just sometimes are, and that's what he is. Um, and the complications that arise from that uh, suck him and other characters in the book into a whole lot of completely unforeseen developments. 
And in terms of, of, of your research, we, t- we were talking with Greg earlier about how he, you sort of throw yourself in, Greg, don't you? You like to be immersed in it. Is that similar for you, Robert? Will you do a lot of the lead up of, or, or are you sort of writing and researching as you go? Oh, no, no. I, there's a lot of planning goes on mm. beforehand, a lot of uh, immersion in the subjects uh, uh, that are concerned with the book, a lot of wandering around the places where the book is set which leads usually to events anyway because I try not to make up locations because it's far too much hard work. (laughs) And uh, anyway, the real ones, they seem to generate events themselves. So actually by going, you're you're getting ideas and things for for the null. Yeah. They just happen. They just happen when you're there. So the first, you know, if it, I said this to a to an author quite recently, and I was sort of making a bit of a joke, and and she didn't take it that well. Where I said, uh, oh, so you just sort of pick where you'd like to go on holiday, and that's where your next book's set. And she she sort of went, it doesn't quite work like that. But I imagine there's a there's an element of being able to do that if you if you're interested in a place, you can go and seek it out, and that that could be the setting of. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole point of writing is is sort of continuing education. Any dark corner that's ever interested me, I get to wander over and shine a flashlight into it. And so I've done all sorts of weird, you know, I've gone undercover to mind control cults. I went down and swam with sharks in Galapagos. I've <laughs> snuck on a demolition ranges with Navy SEALs and blown up cars. I get to do anything that seems weird or unusual or compelling and it gives a good excuse to go to go out there and do it because if i do it myself then i can give the reader a front row seat to the action and so i never know what telling details i'm going to pick up that will give the book this ring of verisimilitude and robert you've taken us from you know all, all around all corners of the uk and further afield in europe and, and japan and things in your book so is have you gone to those places knowing you're going to write about them or gone there and then thought that you're going to write about them afterwards no i've gone there knowing i'm going to write about them with a, a lot of the story already in my head and um just picked up a lot of information sometimes it's easier than others uh so if you're setting a novel in the past and you set it in Paris, that's mm. no problem because Paris is basically the same as it ever was. Well, at least for the last hundred years. <laughs> if you set a novel in Tokyo in the past, you've got yourself a lot of big problems because there's nothing left. Mm. So uh, you have to recreate it in your mind. Um, but going to these places always leads to discoveries. And, uh, well, as Greg says, it gives you the chance to do and, and investigate things you you are interested in. So over those 28 novels, I... I seem to have developed a whole load of knowledge about all sorts of things, uh, which um, uh, and each book is a is a new opportunity to explore mm. it. It's exciting that because then you and and actually after like you say after so many being published and written, you look back and go, oh yeah, I know quite a bit about these subjects actually and these places. Well, I did. <laughs> well, it's nice too because you know here we're we're writing these narrative adventures, but in the course of researching them, we get to have the adventures as well. Mm. I mean, so I think it's it's a nice part if you want your eyes and ears open to new experiences and opportunities as a writer. And it's sort of nice that the draw to do that keeps one acquainted with the fact that life is supposed to be an adventure. You know, we don't get too far away from that usually. Yeah. No, no, I think that's an excellent. Uh, uh, I mean, being a writer doesn't often look very adventurous, but uh, <laughs> it's, it can uh, be. <laughs> <laughs> the actual process is um, sedentary, um, but uh, all the lead up to that is yeah. um, 
can be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And we and we talked earlier about what we what we read uh, as. as as younger readers, what got us into stories, and one of the things that that got me into reading in the first place was was comic books, was reading and and, and graphic novels, and of course this is something that that you're writing as well, Greg. It's uh, Batman being being the the latest one, I think, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I was just on this very podcast, in fact, last last year, last series, um, one of the guests, David Tennant, picked uh, a Batman comic as his book in the book of and definitely one um and partly because it was a great pitch but because i i just think there's such a great way into reading but also now as a 30 something man i still like to go and revisit comic books anyway i just wondered what it was like for you picking up such a such a well-known character and have and sort of running with him. Well, there's an interesting balance. You know, with Batman, Batman exists in a sort of public trust, mm. right? I mean, my father read Batman. When I'm dead and gone, people will be writing and reading Batman. And so you're charged with this, with this, the trust of this character for a brief period of time. And there's a balance when you're writing him between honoring what the tradition is that's come before, right? There's certain rules you can't, you know, you're not going to have Batman kill a busload of nuns, right? There's certain parameters on what Batman is going to reasonably do. Um, But also I want to bring my own voice to it. And it's a different sort of balance. When writing a book, it's all our own voice, right? That's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's a bit of a different approach. I will say the first character that I wrote was my favorite comic book character was over at Marvel. I wrote The Punisher. And I grew up obsessed with The Punisher. And the editor-in-chief for Marvel had called called me up. He'd read some of my books and said, hey, you can pick any character from the Marvel vaults and write them. And so my inner geek boy was doing cartwheels, but I had to pretend that I was a very sophisticated writer. Uh, and so I got the gig, and I wrote it, and I had this completely surreal experience the first time I went to my local comic book shop because I could no longer buy my favorite comic because I was writing it, and I already knew what would happen. <laughs> and that was a pretty good wish fulfillment for my, you know... Yeah, ten-year-old self. I imagine it was. Is there any character that you'd want to take on, Robert? Have you thought about it? I always wanted to be Dan Dare. Dan Dare, yeah, yes, yeah. He was uh, part of the future. He was in the Eagle. Oh, the Eagle. I yeah, realise yeah. we're reaching deep back into the mists of time here, but unfortunately, that's where my childhood lies. And of course, at that time, actually, at that time, really, comics in this country didn't actually have American material in them. They were English comics, so. You all, all had uh, English heroes. Yeah. And Dan Dare, well, they didn't come any more English than Dan Dare. <laughs> These characters outlive the authors in a way. You know, they're just, they will always be, and they'll always be the same age, and they'll, and they'll go through generations. So it must be, quite, must be quite a nice thing, although albeit challenging, to, to have your part in that legacy, I would imagine. Yeah, it is, yeah. you know. And so... It's funny. I was I was charged over DC with with reinventing the villains for the New Fifty Two when they rebooted the whole universe, and it's kind of cool because my Penguin miniseries that I did is was the the actor used it as the basis for his character in Gotham. It's a, so there's there's these little ways that you can contribute a, a brick to the edifice of of these mythologies. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's time to turn to the book off now, gentlemen. And this is where we put you against each other, or we rather we put two books against each other. Uh, these are books that, that you love, that you think everyone should read if they haven't already, or reread perhaps if they have. Um, and we put three minutes on the clock. You can use up to three if you like. You can you can choose to do, use less. But when we get to the three-minute mark, I'm going to have to uh, stop you, and I'll do that via one of these contraptions. You can either have the bell, or you can have the horn. So... Robert, would you like to go first or second in the book off? Uh, oh, I'll go second. You go second, yeah. See what see what Greg's made of. Greg, what would you prefer? Would you prefer the bell or the horn? Um, I I would prefer neither. I'd prefer just a gentle whisper when my time. is Well, up. you're not you're not going to get that. All right, I'll take the horn. <laughs> okay, you got it. Um, and just before we we get started, uh, Robert, which book will you be talking about? I'll be talking about Rat King by Michael Dibden. And what about you, Greg? Well, since I'm going first, I'm going to take Rat King just to throw him off his (laughs) game. Um, I'm going to be talking about The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. The Things They Carried. Okay. Uh, Well, there's three minutes on the clock. It's over to you to tell us why we should all read The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. The Things They Carried is a series of either short stories or essays about Tim O'Brien's time in Vietnam. And to me, they serve as an underpinning of what narrative and what story actually is. He'll tell a story with horrific violence in it, and then he'll say, well, did that actually take place? I don't know. Maybe it never took place, but it captures the spirit of what Vietnam was better than anything that could be real. Or maybe something that took place that actually occurred will tell you nothing about what Vietnam was. So he plays with elements of truthfulness and and plays on the line between fiction and nonfiction. And the whole time that you're reading it, you never know what's real and what isn't. Uh, he also portrays things upside down. Like there will be a story that that involves a, 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 t- a terrible traumatic incident that as you're reading it, you get all the way to the end and you realize it's actually a love story that's turned on its head. So he's always playful with this. I will say I briefly taught fiction, introduction to fiction writing at USC and they told me that I had to bring in a book to use to use a, a book about writing. Now, I never read a book about writing and I never took a class about writing. Um, I just read, you know, 5,000 books, 
was my approach to it. And I didn't want to bring something in that was telling people and locking down how to approach craft. And so the book that I chose was this one because I feel like it spells out not just the character work and not just the structure of how these stories are woven together, but more specifically, it's a book that itself is about what narrative is and what narrative means to us and what narrative's relationship is with the truth, however tenuous, and times that truthfulness comes from events that may be factual or may not be. And so he's all about using language to convey a reality uh, that exists almost independently of what the real reality is because the one that lives inside you from reading the book is the one that matters. And so he's conveying certain things about the incredibly surreal and complex experience of Vietnam through a series of impressions and through a series of beautifully told vignettes. Wow. Yeah, I'll honk you out anyway, even though you had loads of time left. <laughs> That's a fabulous pitch. I, I must say I don't know the book, and hearing you talk about it is, has made me definitely want to go Good. and seek should we, it out. Should we just end the podcast now then, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it works like that. Oh, okay. I don't think it works Persons. like that. He's so articulate, and he has a better accent. going to count. It's all about the pitch. It's all about the pitch. Um, I'll, I'll ask you a few more questions about that in a moment, Greg, but um, it's it's over to you, Robert. I'll, I'll reset the clock for three minutes, uh, and it's your three minutes to tell us about Rat King by Michael Dibden. What um, implement am I having? Oh, you're having the bell. The bell. Yes. Okay. I could recommend any of the Inspector Zen novels of Michael Dibden, but it seems logical to start with the first one he wrote, Rat King, uh, published 30 years ago, which won the CWA Gold Dagger, and set him on the path to create even more of these wonderful mysteries surrounding uh, the strange, contorted, usually politically influenced criminal world of Italy. In this one, set in the 1980s, well, written in the 1980s, uh, Zen starts as a demoted uh, bureaucrat uh, who has disgraced himself by trying to do the job properly as a criminal police officer. And uh, he is... Uh, plucked from bureaucratic obscurity to investigate a kidnapping which is not being solved. And uh, there are, as he soon discovers, lots of people who don't want the kidnapping to be safely resolved. He also has to explain to his American girlfriend, who didn't realise he was a police officer, that he actually is a police officer in a view of her anti-authoritarian philosophical stance. This gives him a lot of trouble. Uh, I think the great thing about all of the Zen novels, and particularly about Blood King, about Rat King, is that it 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 gives you this insight into Italian life, which you just it's just amazingly authentic and detailed. And if you're not, even if you're not particularly uh, enthusiastic about uh, crime fiction, you can just wallow in the insights it gives you into the way Italy was, and of course still is in so many ways. Uh, needless to say, Zen thinks he's going to be able to get one over on them. This time, the bastards won't get away with it. But is he right? Well, you have to find out. Fantastic. Another another quick pitch for uh, uh, two minutes in there as well, Robert. That was great. Wow. Okay. Thank you both. Greg, the, uh, the idea that, uh, that a book can be used as a as a text for teaching even though even though it's you know wasn't written in that purpose because a lot of people will go to the the Stephen Kings and on writing um fascinates me because you you essentially saying that when you when you did teach for a while you you used that book as a way of 
informing students of how to to do plot and everything was that is that that's right used yeah. It? Yeah. um i as i said I, I i don't know it but taking you know taking the vietnam war as a as, as a subject and then playing with those elements of truth as well well the love story of course is it's two best friends that you see all the way through and one gets killed and the other one goes and commits a horrific atrocity and later on, he says, he tells the story to someone and a woman comes up in the crowd and says, why do you tell such, you know, horrible war stories? And he says, an expletive. He says, you dumb, fill in the line, expletive. It's not a war story. That's a love story. Right. So he's constantly turning on its head the type of story we think we're reading and the type of emotion that we think we're, is being conveyed. And this, this sort of playing with the elements of truth as well, because that's something that, I mean, when was this book published? Do you know um, roughly? I, uh, I think the 80s, early 80s. It was early 80s as well. Because that's something now that, that I think has become more and more prominent. These the play, authors playing with the truth or characters, you know, protagonists playing with the truth a bit. Um, so it's almost like it It was a bit of a ahead of its time for that. Robert, with, with Rat King, um, I love that you could have picked any of the series because obviously you love them all equally, do you? Um, well, I'm not absolutely sure about loving all of them mm, absolutely but the, equally, but I do uh, <laughs> love all of them, yes. Yeah, and this one just because, this, I guess if no one's read any of the Zen novels, this is the one that just starts the whole thing off and will get you in. Yes, mm. and uh, it gets you into Zen and it gets you into Italy. Um, as time goes on, um, uh, Dibden has a problem which many writers encounter with a series, which is that uh, the character's too old when they start. And uh, uh, how do we how do we allow for the fact that he's reached retirement age? But that uh, that's that comes later. That comes later, <laughs> right? Yes. And sort of getting the authenticity of a, of a place, you know, like Italy, like you said, and that insight into Italian life is not not the easiest thing. And and so obviously you've what you took from this book and and all the others were a real sense of place. Much like we were discussing, he's obviously really got to the heart of it. Well, he did live and work in Italy, um, and uh, on the few occasions I met him, he always had a copy of Corriere della Sera folded up under his arm, so he was clearly still uh, staying in touch with uh, the Italian world. Right, okay. Unless it was just a prop, of course. <laughs> he could have. Yeah. That sounds like an affectation. <laughs> oh, here's this? Yeah. Oh, I, I seem to have dropped my CWA silver dagger. Yeah. Did you, have you spotted it? <laughs> I should have checked the date on the paper, of course. It could have been the same copy. Yes, he could have had yeah. it for 20 years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Wait a minute. Hold on. Um, well, both great pictures, both great sounding books, neither of which I, I know, I have to say. Um, but I've got, to take, I've got to take one home. Um, and I'm gonna go with today. I think I'm gonna go with the things they carried by Tim O'Brien because I'm so intrigued by that that st- that story arc and the fact that you used it for for teaching purposes. So there's got to be a sort of lot more into it. But I have to say, Robert, I'm I'm definitely gonna go and seek out Rat King and also probably then the rest of the series because I love the idea of going to that sort of murky underworld in Italy, especially that un- that crime underworld, you know. That's uh, great. That's right <laughs> up my street. Um before we before we go and I let you gents get on with your day. Obviously both both books are are out now. You've been screenwriting Greg is that is that something that's continuing are you sort of doing that alongside your books? It is. I mean, I but I do have a new Orphan X book that I I must get back to typing on, um, because you know this is a character that that I love means a lot to me, and 
and fortunately, um, you know, I'm going to be writing him for a while to come. So as long mm-hmm. as people keep reading this character, I'm going to keep keep writing him. So that's the next step. So as soon as I'm on the plane, you know, flying back to warmer weather, I'm going to be figuring out his next adventure. <laughs> and what about you, Robert? Are you already thinking about the next, the, the 29th novel? Uh, you know, I've started uh, work on the 29th, yes. Um, well, after uh, you've dwelt on the number of novels I've written (laughs) and the number of years involved, it does become um, a dominant activity of my life. Yeah, Uh, of course. So I just, uh, I enjoy it. Uh, I think it's a general rule. I think you can rely on that um, prolific authors like writing and uh, the ones who aren't prolific, well, maybe they don't. Um, It's supposed to be enjoyable for the writer and the reader, a point that um, we should always bear in mind. Absolutely right. Are you having a big party when you when your thirtieth comes out? Undoubtedly, <laughs> <laughs> I'm flying back out for it. Right? <laughs> uh, out of the Dark by Greg Hoetz is published by Michael Joseph, and One False Move by Robert Goddard is published by Bantam Press. Both books are available now. Both brilliant reads as well. Robert, Greg, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank for you. Having us. It's been great seeing you again. And I won't see you at Harrogate this year, but maybe at a at a future one for the thirtieth, Robert. Yep. <laughs> thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.